Well, again, this week we're going to go back to a sermon series that I've been working on for the last six weeks from the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is in the middle of the Bible. It's what we call wisdom literature. It's trying to teach us how to live our life before, before God. And the question that we've been looking at over the last number of weeks is this question, why am I here? In a topic that the teacher in the book of Ecclesiastes keeps circling back to is the topic of our death. It's not a comfortable topic. It's not a topic that we always want to talk about. In, in fact, it's a topic we would much rather avoid. But you remember from Ecclesiastes 3 verse 1, he says, um, you know, there is a day to be born and there is a day to, to die. And then in Ecclesiastes 3 verse 19, he has these powerful words. He says, a man's fate is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. So one dies, so dies the other. It's quite depressing actually how much he focuses on this topic. But maybe he's focusing on this topic because there's something to learn about life when we focus on death. <laughs> and I know this morning that as I enter this topic about death and I enter this topic about the house of mourning, going to a funeral, that for some of you right now, it's a little too raw to actually hear a message like this. That there might be some triggering that happens this morning as, as I address some of the topics that we're going to be talking about. And, and that could be because the death happened, you know, weeks ago or even years ago. 10 years, 15, 20 years ago, you have a loved one who has died. And you're still bearing the grief of their death on your heart. And it doesn't take very much for someone to just say something or for you to look at something and you are triggered and the tears begin to flow. I'm aware of that. And I'm preaching this message with as much sensitivity as I can, knowing that there is hope. And the hope that we find in this passage is, is, is a hope that ultimately rests in Jesus Christ. He is the doctor of our souls. And as a doctor, he has this Hippocratic oath, you could say, that he puts the needs of his patients before his own. And that's what we see here in John chapter 16. So we're going to open the Bible to John chapter 16. This is a New Testament text. Jesus is a day, hours before his arrest. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to be put into the hands of his enemies. And his concern, oh, our blessed Savior... His concern is not for his life. His concern is for the joy of his disciples and their spiritual and physical well-being. And I want to remind you this morning that Jesus hasn't changed. His concern this morning is for your spiritual and emotional, even physical well-being. So let us open this morning to John chapter 16. The text will be um, posted on the screen behind me. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. It's what we call the upper room discourse. This is Thursday, Monday, Thursday, before his death. And Jesus talks about grief, 
will be turning to joy. Jesus says in verse 16, Jesus went on to say, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. At this, some of his disciples said to one another, What does he mean by saying, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me, because I am going to the Father. They kept asking, What does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he is saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, Are you asking one another what I meant when I said, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain. And all God's women say, Amen. Because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy. Then a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief. But I will see you again. And you will rejoice. And here's the promise. And no one will take away your joy. Well, that's from the words of Jesus, and we're going now to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. If you have Bibles, you can open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. It's right in the middle of the Bible, and what we're going to learn about here is wisdom. What, 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 what the teacher wants to teach us is wisdom, and as I said earlier, whether we like it or not, death has a way of teaching us wisdom. And in fact, if you're opening our, our text this morning, maybe the kids can help me this morning as, as the text is read off. He uses the word better, more in this passage, talking about death than anywhere else in Ecclesiastes. So maybe kids, you can answer this question for me as we're reading from this passage. How many times does the teacher, the writer, the author of Ecclesiastes use the word better in this text? Okay, so that's what you've got to do. You've got to help me out here. You're going to count how many times he talks about something being better in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. So we're going to open there, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 1. There we find these words, a good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of death better than the day of birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, for death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Frustration is better than laughter, because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. It is better to heed the rebuke of a wise person than to listen to the songs of fools. Like the crackling of thorns or sticks under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. This too is meaningless. How many times was the word better used, kids? Six? Well done. I, th I thought it was five, but it's five or six. Good. Well, maybe, you know, probably in the Hebrew there's another one. So we'll say there's six. Let's, um, let's come before the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, as we open your word this morning, we thank you that you're going to teach our hearts and our souls. 
We enter into a difficult topic, a topic that we wish we didn't have to talk about. And we know that one day we will not have to talk about it anymore. But on this side of eternity, under the sun, before the great divide, we have to address this topic. And we thank you that your word is here to guide us as we do in Jesus' name. Amen. I think many of us, maybe some of the children among us, not so much, maybe if you're a teen, maybe not, but many of us have had to go to a funeral already in our life, and some of us have had to go to too many of them, you'll tell me. I remember the first funeral that I went to. I was 10 years old. It was my grandfather's funeral. And I didn't know what really to expect. Now, I'm talking about the funeral home. I was nervous, of course. And, and I experienced some things that left an indelible stamp on my mind. I, I can still remember the occasion. I noticed two things. or came, Two things were brought to my attention. Number one, that there were people who were weeping and mourning there. And there were others who were talking and even laughing. I didn't know how to process that, but that just struck me. That at a funeral, both were happening. The other thing that left an indelible stamp on my mind is this fact that my grandfather was now in a coffin that he would not get out of on his own strength. And that, at least his body was, and that one day I would be in a coffin as well. Two thoughts came to my mind like Job in 30, verse 23, for I know that you will bring me to death. You know, the teacher wants to remind us this morning that something is 100% certain in your life. And it's this, that it will end. That you will die. And the teacher wants us to remind us this morning that there are two options then when you face the reality of your death. The one option is to face death by walking backwards into it. Pretending, as it were, that it doesn't exist. And that's the general flow of thought for most people, sadly, in this world. They kind of walk backwards into death. <laughs> that was apropos. And, and even when somebody dies, they will say and think like this, and I have, I'm, I'm just glad it wasn't me at this time. I don't know if I'm ready to die. And, and we start to play this game of pretending some of you might know Simon and Garfunkel. They've grown old and they used to sing in the 80s and 90s, so I'm aging myself again. But they wrote a song and the song was titled, Flowers Never Bend with the Rainfall. And in the chorus of their song, they write these words, so I will continue to continue to pretend my life will never end and flowers never bend with the rainfall. And for some of you, you could probably pick the tune. 
I'll continue to continue to pretend that life will never end. That's one way of approaching death. It's called denial. And if you think that this is just a modern phenomena, this is something that we do now in the 21st century in a Western world where we have a lot of material wealth and or affluent. Now, this also happened in the 1500s, just after the, or near the end of the bubonic or black plague, where 25 million people saw their death. This idea of pretending also happened there. John Calvin was a writer, an author, a preacher, uh, part of what we call the Reformation. He wrote in the 1500s, he writes these words. He says... He says, there we go, good. I'm glad it's up on the screen. We undertake all things as if we were establishing immortality for ourselves on earth. Then he says, if we see a dead body, we may philosophize briefly about the fleeting nature of life. But the moment we turn away from the sight, the thought of our own permanence remains fixed in our minds. We still have this idea that we're going to continue on indefinitely. There's one approach to facing death, and that's facing death backwards. That's not what the teacher wants us to do. No, the teacher wants us to face death forward, frontal, looking straight at it. He begins in verse 7, but with these, chapter 7, with these words, a good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of death better than the day of birth. Now, I think all of you would agree that a good name is better than fine perfume. That's an easy one. I don't know if everyone will agree with me or agree with the teacher here that the day of your death or the day of death of someone else's death, even close to you, is better than the day of birth. How could that be? You know, the maternity ward is generally a pretty happy place. Some of us have been blessed to be part of that process where we're in the maternity ward and and, and we get lots of people commenting pre-COVID when they come and see the baby. They say, oh, the baby's so cute. He looks just like his mother or her father. The baby has a little button nose. And they never said that about my kids when they talked about me, but more their mom. Such a nice little button nose, chubby cheeks. The baby's so cute. And then we, we relish those thoughts. And then we post our pictures on, on Facebook and Instagram. And people are excited. So we post more pictures. And people are still more excited. It just keeps going. And we celebrate birth. In fact, we should. It's a gift from God. Our children, whether adopted or biological, they're a gift from God. Then why would the teacher say the day of your death or the day of death is better than the day of birth? He can only say these words if he's talking about seeking wisdom. There's way more wisdom found when you look at a coffin than when you look at a crib. That's what he's trying to tell us. As uncomfortable as that reality might be for us this morning. And so there is, therefore, a better way to live your life out, not facing life backwards, but looking at death, facing death backwards, but looking at death frontal, front, with your front view on, with your focus on it. And, and, and we're going to look at two things this morning as we, as we divide that reality. There is a better way. We're going to go to the house of mourning. 
And secondly, we're going to be invited into the house of joy. So let's begin by going to the house of mourning. There's three reflections I'd like to make about going to the house of mourning. First is this, that we need to go willingly, we need to go with an open heart, and we need to remember the reason for death. Those will help you as we navigate this course. Here we need to go willingly. Verse 2 of chapter 7, it's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. You know, when, 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 when death strikes, it never strikes at a good time. We all know that. And you're never prepared, ultimately, for someone's death, even if there's time for preparation beforehand. Many of you will tell me stories where you had no idea that this would happen. And it struck you and the emotions are so raw and the grief so intense that when you think about going to the house of mourning, you're not thinking about going there willingly. You're kind of dragged or pulled into that house because you have to go, but it's the last place on earth that you want to be. And I think you have to understand that the teacher understands the pain and the grief of going to the house of mourning when death has struck. And it's raw. But the teacher doesn't want to, you, to, to focus merely on, on that intimate reality. He wants you to back up a bit. And he wants you to have a global worldview, a bigger picture of the reality of death. And that's why he kind of talks about this from, a, from, a, from almost like a, a clinical perspective. He wants to talk about it in the sense of learning from what's going on here. Taking it in. Being willing to listen to what has to happen here. You know, I've been to funerals, and I've had to do a number of funerals, not many, many funerals in Papua New Guinea. But I've been to a funeral where people came to that funeral with an unwilling spirit to learn anything. It was like I was preaching to a bunch of seagulls on a, on a perch, ready to fly away at the drop of anything. And what happened was this. I'll just give you a little bit of context. This was a beautiful Christian woman. She'd come to faith later in her life. She, she was 60 or 70 years old. I don't know exactly how old she was. She loved her Savior. She knew that for her to live was Christ and to die was gain. She was prepared to die. The sad reality is that she was the second wife of a husband who didn't love her. And so when everybody came to the funeral, they were just doing their time. Death was no instructor for them. I remember preaching hope to them. I remember preaching the reality of life in Christ, the, the, the call to repentance. I, I, I said it all, I thought. And I remember lowering in Papua New Guinea, everybody, you dig a hole by hand, and then you put the body into the hole, and everybody fills the hole back up with their shovels. They couldn't wait to get out of there. And then there was this murmuring going on as we were, as we were finishing up with the graveside. Just can't wait to go home and get drunk and gamble. There was no lessons learned there. The teacher says when we go to a funeral and when we deal with, with life we, and when we go into the house of mourning, we need to go with a willingness to go because God is going to talk to us there. Therefore, we need to go with an open heart. We need to go with an open heart. 
This is what he says in verse 2. He says, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Death is the better for, of, everyone, for, of everyone. For the living, the living should take note. For death is the destiny of everyone, sorry. The living should take this to heart. And then he goes on, frustration is better than laughter because a sad face is, is good for the heart. And the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. And, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. There's so much to do with the heart when it comes to the house of mourning. See, I've shared that there are times where I've gone to funerals where people were not willing to listen to the gospel. But I've gone to most funerals where people were willing to listen to the gospel. I have found that most people come to a funeral with open hearts, not only to pay respects, last respects, you could say, but he has a word to try to squeeze out any possible nectar of hope from the words that were spoken from the pulpit. I knew this. I could see the tears. Maybe they were realizing that death was a teacher and it was teaching them of the limitations of their life. Maybe they were realizing that death was reshaping their goals, their attitudes, the things that we're work- looking forward to and the hopes they had. Recently I read, and maybe some of you have read, Tim Chalice's blog. Some of you know that name, Tim Chalice. He's a blogger, a Christian blogger. Well, Tim Chalice is my age. He even went to the same university at the same time as I did. And he lost his son in November. His son was 20 years old. And he wrote a blog recently, and this is just out of his blog. This is what he says. What choice do I have but should to shoulder, I should say shoulder, this burden, to carry this cross, to press on toward heaven, to press on toward you even. Talking about his son. Then he says this, God has used your death to help pry my fingers off this world, to make me long for heaven in a whole new way, but he's also used it to give me new direction for life, to make me want to make the most of my time on earth. The blog is heart-wrenching. But Tim has had to absorb some of the teachings that death brings. And one of those teachings that it takes your fingers off this world. The sense of permanence is beginning to erase in his mind that this world is not our ultimate home. But not only does death teach us to take a, a, a looser grip to the things of this world, which is so informative, It asks the bigger question, what are we holding on to? If we lose a loved one and we were holding on to that loved one, what replaces that or that person? What what are we now holding on to? I want to go back to another author that I respect highly, and his name is is C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis was married for four short years in his life, I think between the ages of 50 to 54, something like that. To a widow, her name was Joy, ironically. After he lost Joy, and he had such a beautiful relationship with Joy, after he lost Joy, he wrote a book called Grief Observed. I've read this book, maybe you have too. It's a powerful, powerful book. 
But he says this about holding on. What are you holding on to when it comes to your faith after someone dies? He says, you never know how much you really believe anything until it's truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death to you. It is easy to say you believe a rope to be strong and sound as long as you are merely using it to tie up a little box. But suppose you had to hang by that rope over a precipice or a cliff. Wouldn't you then first discover how much you really trusted it? There's a picture here of someone hanging on a precipice. You want to make sure those ropes are are strong. And the bolt is strongly placed in 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 the mountain. You see, the bigger question really is, where is your hope in the face of death? Timothy Keller, another writer, has been recently diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. He says this, theoretical ideas about God's love and and future resurrection had to become life-gripping truths for me or disregarded as useless. Either the truth of the resurrection is real, either Christ is real, either there's hope of an eternal life, or everything is useless. That's his point. If you're going to put all your life, you're going to throw your whole life into some reality, it better be able to hold you. And the question is, can Christ hold you in this new reality? We'll get back to that answer. You see, the opposite is to avoid death in its sting by seeking pleasure. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. And later on, he calls this the house of pleasure. You see, what happens when you go and avoid the funeral home for the house of pleasure is that you're allowing the distractions of this world to become kind of an escape for you because you don't want to deal with reality. You don't have to check the strength of the rope, which we call faith, at a party. The truth of God's promises, His love, His covenant with you, are not questioned when you're feasting. Generally, at a party, you don't have to squeeze out the nectar of hope in God's Word to make it through the next day. At a party, you have a way of just kind of forgetting the next day. And what happens at parties in the house of feasting, some of these places are not wrong to go to in themselves, provide holiness abounds, is this, that their amusement is a reality that will quickly dissipate like kindling in a fire when you try to hold on to that life and try to find hope in those places. And that's why the teacher says, you know, at the end of the day, even though you are deeply sad, at the loss of a loved one, compared to the laughter at a party, sadness is better. I love how the message puts it. It says, crying is better than laughing. It blotches the face, but it scours the heart. Isn't that a wonderful picture? Crying is better than laughing because it blotches the face. It it blotches your face, yes, yes but it scours the heart. There's a purging that goes on in those tears. 
of grief. Yes, your heart will be pierced at death. But there's a healing power that we need to realize in the author of life. But before we get to the author of life, and that will be closing off the sermon, we need just to spend a little bit of time here. We need to remember the reason for death. None of this conversation makes sense if we don't understand why people die. You know, many of you can share similar stories as me, but as a young boy, and, and, and throughout your life, you, these come back as well. You really um, begin, I, I began at a very young age questioning life, well, questioning death actually, and having a lot of anxiety over death. What happens after you die? How long is eternity? Will I be bored in heaven? Um, you know, is there something after eternity? Um, what if I don't get there? What if the whole thing is just a, a lie? And these questions began to plague me in my younger years, and they would keep me up at night because the questions are real. But behind the, those questions of, you know, what's eternity, but what's going to happen when I die, all those kind of questions, is a bigger question, really, why death? Why is there even death in this world? You know, there's, there's, there's only two ways to answer this question. One way to answer this is, is a scientific, scientific way, a rationalistic way. And, and, that is, and, that is, and that is to say, you know, it's just part of the circle of life. You're on this stage called life for just a short period of time, and then you exit the stage. But the ones who survive is, is, are the fitter ones, and they will continue to survive, but they will also die. And it's just this circle that will keep going around for Forever, maybe. We call it natural selection, but it's speculative. But the other way to look at the reason for death is to look at it from an authoritative way, which is to say, if there is a God in heaven who created a good world, then we have to understand what happened to this good world that death entered. And some of you know the story. There was a day when, when, when this world was was. was, was was perfect, and, and God gave a test to his children, Adam and Eve, and said, you know, you can walk with me in this relationship forever, basically, but do not touch this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. As, sure as, as soon as you touch it, you will die. And the lure was too great. They chose to eat the fruit. They chose to rebel against God and reject him, and they met death. It was a spiritual death at first, but also a physical death. Death settled into their DNA and, and their cells wouldn't regenerate the way they used to and, and all of a sudden there's entropy and, and all of a sudden there's going to be death that befalls all of humanity. And the reality is, is that because of their death and their sin, we are born in sin. And death has come to us. Romans 5 verse 12 says, Therefore just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, because all sinned. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, for as in Adam all die. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. And, and, and as soon as you understand that it's because of sin that death has entered into this world, you're forced to answer, uh, ask another question. Who's going to deal with this if I can't? Is there help 
on the other side of the sun? Is there help coming from heaven that's going to help me to deal with the reality of death? If death is going to befall all of humanity because of my sin and your sin, and that's the wages of our sin, is there someone who's going to deal with this death reality? Or is this the only reality that we will ever know? You live, you die. End of the story. In this chapter, you understand there's a crying out. There's a longing for a hope. You don't talk about the house of mourning unless there's a place of joy that can follow. Why would the author spend so much time talking about death if there was no answer to it? You have to understand that Jesus' footsteps are wrestling, rustling these pages here this morning because he does have an answer. And because Jesus has an answer, he opens the door and he invites us into a new reality. One that Solomon or the Koheleth, the teacher here, only has a slight picture of, but we get to experience in fuller measure because we have the whole Bible in front of us. Death is not the end of the story. I'm just going to finish with this, the last point. Invited into, being invited into the house of joy. If there's a house of mourning, I tell you, loved ones, this morning, there's also a house of joy. You know, Jesus, more than anyone else here this morning, and who has walked the face of this earth, understands death. Jesus understands its insatiable appetite. Jesus saw pain and grief in the face of death, and he also admitted or saw his own pain and grief in the face of his own death. And he says in John 16, verse 20, Very truly I tell you, you will weep and you will mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. And the beautiful thing about our Savior who signed that Hippocratic oath and put the needs of his disciples before his own and the, your needs before his own, he did not walk into his death backwards. Our Savior sent from above came for the purpose of his death. He came to die. He knew exactly what he was doing. When he spoke to his disciples, he knew exactly why he had to go to the garden. He knew exactly why he had to meet Judas. He knew exactly what he had to say in front of Caiaphas, in front of Pilate. He knew exactly what he had to do as he walked the hill to Calvary. He knew he had to become, as it were, a sacrifice for his people. He came to die. Because there was no other way to heal us. No other way to deal with the penalty of Adam's sin and the sin that has fallen upon humanity. There is no other way than to die under the weight of the judgment on, that was on him. He became a death-conquering king. Do you know that? He's the only one in human history that was able to face off with death to face off with the penalty of death, to face, face, to face off with the intruder who brought death into the world, Satan, and conquer them all and rise again. He's the only one in history. 
And therefore, Paul says, he is the first fruits then. He is the first one of our glorious resurrection. He is the one that we can hope in because he has conquered death. He is the conquering king. So, he's, so Jesus says to his disciples, knowing that he was going to be victorious, says in verse 22, now is your time of grief, chapter 6, verse 22, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again. And you will rejoice. And no one will take away your joy. And I'm going to ask you this morning if you understand a little bit of what that means for you personally. Now we're talking about the death-conquering king here. What does this joy mean to you? Do you believe that in Jesus Christ who has conquered death that there is a joy that he can give you that no one can steal from you? Do you believe that this joy is eternal? Do you believe that this joy allows you to not have to deal with your past sins and the past shame and the past guilt that you've endured your whole life? That Jesus says, because of my death, I have removed those sins far from you. They will never, they will never stand in judgment against you that you are set free. Do you believe that he has given you a clear conscience so that you can face tomorrow? Do you, do you realize that this joy is never going to be mixed with pain and suffering, with tears, with shame, with sadness and sorrow? Revelation 21 verse 4 says, He will wipe every tear from your eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And Jesus says to you this morning, I am your death-conquering king. I have an answer to the death problem in this world. I have the only answer. And I'm inviting you this morning into my house of eternal joy. I've opened the door. And I'm asking you this morning, Jesus is asking you this morning, do you want to go in? Do you want to be with him forever? The one who has given his life for you. Do you want to rest in his promises? Do you want to stay with him and enjoy what he has bought you on the cross? Do you want to be with him forever? And you say, yes, I do, because he is the only way and the only life. There is no other way to expand or live in this life of suffering and shame and guilt and grief and pain without him. And Jesus says to you this morning, Believe in me. Trust me. Trust that you can hold on to this rope and it will not let you go. Trust that I will even help you hold on to this rope and I will not let you go. Trust that I've opened the door and I'll usher you in into your eternal home one day. Trust me. He says, finally, for my Father's will is that everyone Chapter 6, verse 40 of John. For my Father's will, listen to this, that everyone who looks to the Son, the death-conquering King, and believes in Him shall have eternal 
life. And get this, I, says Jesus, the one who went to death for you, paid the penalty of sin for you, rose again for you. He says, I will raise you up on the last day. You are safe with me. And my question to you this morning is simply this. Do you believe that? Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. Although there's so much to share about this theme of the house of mourning, and I could preach much longer about this and because there's so much to unpack. We thank you this morning, Father, that you provide the answer to the death problem. It's the greatest problem that has befalled humanity. There is no greater problem, there's no greater enemy than the enemy of death. And we thank you, Jesus, for coming and dealing a fatal blow to death. We thank you for rising again. We thank you for the invitation to be with you forever. Lord, we pray that by your Spirit, you will touch our hearts in a special way this morning. That we will surrender our life to you and believe that only in you is there eternal life. And we know, Lord, that even as we wait for the day of your return or the day that we are promoted, we're still going to suffer. We're still going to grieve. Death is still an enemy, though it's gasping for its last, on its last breath. But it's still an enemy. And so encourage us and feed our souls with hope as we wait the final day where there will be no more death, no more sadness, no more grief, only joy in your eternal presence. In Jesus' name do we pray. Amen.